0: Our Old Testament reading before we get to Romans 5 is from Isaiah 53, so I'm going to ask you to please turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 53, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 11, and this is God's word, Isaiah 53, finding its ultimate fulfillment, obviously, in Jesus Christ and his work on our behalf. Hear the word of the Lord, Isaiah 53, who has believed. Surely he bore our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him, the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and was afflicted Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that's led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for transgressions of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities amen and praise god now Romans chapter 5 and we'll be preaching verses 6 through 11 but I'm going to begin since it's been a while since we've been in Romans begin in verse 1 Paul says Well, just let me give the context. Of course, we know Romans is being written by Paul to Christians, Christians in Rome, Christians from all over the place. So you had a mix of Jews and Gentiles in that church, but they were Christians or professing Christians, believing Christians in the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's writing this letter to them and he's talking about the importance of the gospel. We know that. And then he talks about the gospel itself, and he starts off with sin. And the first three and a half chapters are on the sinfulness of man. We talked about that. We spent a lot of time there. There were some difficult passages, but necessary passages, right, to see the depth of our sin, our helplessness, our our utter contempt for God, and our utter need for his grace. And then beginning in 3 through 4, We talked about God's justification, his love, how he pours his love on on his people, on those who would believe and trust in him, how we're justified by grace alone. We saw Abraham was justified. And now we come to chapter 5, and we've uh, preached a few sermons in 5 already, but as we come to this chapter, um, for me personally, I think it's my favorite chapter in Romans because Just the depth of the love and the grace of God, and that mercy that it just poured out upon us, just comes through in this chapter, and and he's he's bringing out the benefits of what it means to be justified—that we're declared not guilty, that we're considered righteous, that we have Christ's righteousness, that Christ took all of our sin, that we believe in Him, that we belong to Him, and Paul just kinds of kind of pours out that love and the and the benefits of being justified, of what it means to be a Christian, man, that's what he's talking about. This is what we have. This is who we are in Christ and to God and how deep his love is for us. So with that, I'm going to uh, begin in verse 1 and read through 11. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice for one will scarcely die for a righteous person though perhaps for a good person one might dare even to die but god shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners christ died for us since therefore we have now been justified by his blood how much more will we be saved by i'm sorry how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of god For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. There's a lot there. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you and praise you. And again, we thank you for your precious word. We thank you for the living word of God, inspired word, inerrant word, all-sufficient word of God. As we come before this, Lord, we do so with fear and trepidation. And I just pray that you would be with each and every one of us to cause us to fix our hearts and minds on Jesus Christ, not to be thinking about later today or tomorrow or next week but now Lord God that we're fixed upon you and I pray that you would be with me Lord God and empower me by your spirit to bring forth your precious truth and your precious word for who is adequate for these things Lord God so we look to you and rely upon you and thank you and praise you Lord God may you be honored and glorified we pray in Jesus name amen and amen Okay, so Paul has been bringing out all the benefits of justification, what it means to be made right with God, you know, from being lost to being found, dead to being alive, blind to now seeing. What it means when you weren't converted to being a Christian, how amazing that is, the truly converted and those who belong to him. In this section, especially uh, 5B or 6 to 11, Paul really brings out the depth of his love, and that's what I want to bring across today, the depth of Christ's love for us as his people and what he has done for us. And therefore, because of that love, that we live in greater obedience. Not so that he'll love us, but because that he loves us. Now, and and he's not going to stop loving us, now I want to live my life deeper for Jesus Christ. Right. It's not out of this obligation. Oh, I'm afraid he might take his love away from me or maybe he'll love me more if I do this. No, 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 no. He can't love us any more or any less. And knowing that should cause us to love him the most in our lives. Amen. Praise God that we're going to live for Christ, man. That's what this is about. It's a section that's so rich and so full of the love of God for his people. Remember, we're talking about his people. We talked about this before. We talked about who are his people, his elect, those whom he chose before the foundation of the world, those whom he loved. So you ask, well, how do you know who the elect are? Oh, you're using that language, that predestined language, that language. Listen, how do you know who the elect are? It's all those who, by the grace of God, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. If you believe in him, if you're truly trusting in him, you know that he's chosen you before the foundation of the world. It's that simple. It's not a big mystery. If you love Jesus Christ, He's loved you before the foundation of the world. It's so amazing. That's all all those who by grace believe on him. That is grace. That's what makes salvation so amazing, so astonishing, so different than anything else. That he could love a wretch like you. Amen? Praise God. That's, understand, that, and, and that word wretch, that actually means something. It means, it's. The connotations, yeah, it means despicable. You know, when you hear the song "Amazing Grace," who saved a wretch like me, it means contemptuous, it means ungrateful, miserable, undeserving kind of person. And we don't like to think of ourselves in those terms. But apart from Christ, that's just what we are. At our heart of hearts, as we reject Him, so He loves us, and He loved us even when we were like that. Amen. Praise God. So his amazing love in this text is shown in three distinct ways. That's what I want to bring out today. Nice and simple. One, two, three. It's amazing because of the objects of his love. Number one, it's amazing because the price he paid to bring us to himself. And then it's amazing because of the assurance of that love and that we have in Jesus Christ. So let's begin with that. And we're going to be looking at, again, six through 11. Not necessarily in order. But let's first of all think about the objects of his love. Think about that. He loves you. He loved you. Look at verse 6 what it says about this, about the objects of his love. He says, while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for, died for the ungodly. And then in verse 8, but God chose his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us for us. And then in verse 10, for while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of Jesus Christ. Think about that for a minute. Think about the objects of his love. Weak, ungodly, sinners, enemies. That's very descriptive of who we are apart from Christ. Think about what it takes to be accepted by God, by the gods of this world. How do most religions, every other religion besides Christianity, how do you get to that place? How do you get acceptance? How do you get into that, that Peace, that place of peace, that nirvana. What do you have to do? You always have to do something. You always have to make yourself better. You always have to obey in some way. You always have to do some work so that you become acceptable, right? That's 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 what's so counterintuitive. That's what's so amazing about Christianity because he loved you when you were ungodly, when you were a wretch, when you were the sinner that you were. That's when he loved you. It wasn't I'm making myself better. See God, now maybe you'll love me. I'm doing the best I can. Maybe you'll accept me. No, no, no. That's not what scripture teaches. When we were weak, ungodly sinners and enemies. That word weak, it's it's such a it's used so many times in scripture and it's used in a literal way when you're just kind of weak physically. It's used figuratively. It's used Uh, for morality, were weak morally in that way. He loved you. Think about this, Christian, that he loved you when you were without strength. When you when you were impotent, when you were helpless, when you couldn't do anything to help yourself or make him love you or be attracted to you in any way, that's when he loved you. He set his affection upon you while you were still in that condition. You didn't have to do something and he said, oh, now you're a good little boy. Now you're a good little girl. I think I love you. No, he loved you when you were weak, when you were morally unable to help yourself when you couldn't attain to, when you couldn't live up to the standard, when you couldn't keep the commandments, He loved you. That's the love of God. No matter how hard you tried, you could not do that. That's why, as Christians, man, when we talk to people about the Lord and they start to say, well, I've done this and I'm doing that and I'm working harder and I'm trying to be better, what do we do? We shake our heads Because we know no matter how much you do, how hard you try, you cannot earn the love of God. It's not in us. We're unable to do that. Why? Because we're weak. He loved you when you were ungodly. That that word means irreverent. All right? Again, you want to think, well, if I shape up, if I do a little bit better, if I clean up my act, then that love is going to be poured upon me. No, that's not what the Bible teaches. When you were ungodly, that's irreverent. When you didn't love God, when God didn't enter into the equation of, of your thinking at all. Man, that's when, when you, you weren't thinking. You were just doing life the way you wanted to do it. Following your plans, your hopes, your dreams. Not factoring God in any single way. Not thinking about His standard. Not not knowing that He's sovereign in any way. Not believing that you'll have to answer to Him. How many people do you know that are live? You live like that. How many people do you know in your life today? They're ungodly. That's what that means. We always kind of think, oh, they're the kind of the worst people in the world. No, man. The ungodly is when God doesn't enter into the equation in any single way in your life. You're just doing your life without God as you see fit. That's most people today. That's most of your friends, family, co-workers. Go ahead. Tell people... Try this little experiment. Tell people that they're living contrary to his word and see what reaction you get because they're ungodly. They don't want anything to do with God. If you go to your friends and tell them this is what God demands, they're going to laugh at your face, they're going to get angry with you, and they're going to walk away unless the Holy Spirit's working in their hearts at that moment, but that's the ungodly. But think about it. He loved you when you were ungodly, when you wanted nothing to do with him. That's the depth of the love. This is why... I'm not going to do this justice. I can't. I'm so very inadequate, especially bringing this forth. But this is the love of God that he has for his people that motivates us to live for him, to forget about ourselves and be obedient to him. So he loved us while we were sinners. Verse eight, harmatolos, that's the word, harmatology, that's the doctrine of sin. And that means what? When you were missing the mark, man, when you were doing your own thing, when you were transgressing his law without even thinking about it, when you were lying, cheating, stealing, coveting, not honoring him as you ought to, disobeying your parents, being that person that you were in your life, he loved you. When you were willfully disobeying him. And that word for sinner there talks not only about the actions of transgressing, of going, crossing the line, of missing the mark of being a sinner, but even our nature. Do you know that we are sinners by nature, man? We're just born into sin and also by choice. Sinners by nature and by choice. So on Psalm 51, you know this. Behold, David says, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. By nature, we're born in sin. And not only that, we... We willfully sin. We know what's right and what's wrong. Even as unbelievers, we understand the law of God. We still cross that line and we still break it very willfully. The sort of catechism asks, what is sin? Sin is any one of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Not conforming to it, not doing what we ought to do, and then also doing the things we should not be doing. That is sin. We're transgressing God's law. We are sinners. And yet, he says, while you were still sinners, God loved you. He goes on and says, when we were enemies, verse 10, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. And notice, it's in that past tense, while we were. It's not, you know, because now you're not in this way. While you were still in that state, this is how he loved you. And now we know that as we look back. He says, you are enemies. Extros is the word. That means adversary. That's a real strong word. It means foe. He loved you when you hated him, in other words. That, 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 that strong word for, you know you know who your enemies are. You can't stand like some, some of your enemies. That person does not like you. You don't like that person. They want to do damage to you. They want to hurt you. They're your enemies. They want to hurt your reputation. They want to, they want to see you down. And they don't like you. You are enemies. While we were his enemies, while we hated him, he loved us. Now, people are going to say, oh, I love God. If you talk to some people, oh, I, I love God. I have a place for God. I don't hate God. Don't say it like that. Although more and more people are just kind of coming out with it, coming out with the truth that they do despise God. But there's still a lot of people that say, no, I don't, I don't hate God. They don't. It's a God, the God they don't hate, or the God that they love is just a God of their own making, actually, when you talk to them, right? Because once they're confronted with the true and the living God, the God of this word, you're going to see that change. Because people love God. Oh, I love God. What God, what God do you love? I love the God that affirms me. I love the God that, that, is, that is good with me. I love the God who, who accepts me for who I am. I love the God who embraces me. I love the God who understands me. I love the God who condones my life. I'm not going to be harsh. He's always going to be very forgiving no matter what I do. That's the kind of God I love. That's not the God of the Bible. That's not the God of the world. That's that's not what he's talking about. I love the God that gets me. You see all those ads? Oh, he gets you. He gets you. Watch out for that. That's progressive stuff. It's not going to get to the heart of the gospel and talk about our sin nature and needing Jesus Christ for salvation. That's kind of more like, oh, he understands you and and he loves you anyway and and you'll be all right with him in that way. Be careful of those things. But that's that's what this is. Because once you're confronted with the holy and righteous demands of God's law and God's word... Then the hostility is going to come out. <laughs> when you tell them no, 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 you can't live that way, the hostility is going to come out. When you say no, 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 you're, you're not a boy, you're a girl, the hostility is going to come out. When you're going to say no, 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 you, you can't go down that path, the hostility is going to come out. That then no, 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 that's not a god that they love so much. Right? That's the god of the Bible. That's the god they're enemies with, and yet while we were enemies with him. Well, we were enemies. You know what an enemy you were with the Lord. Right? You wanted a little bit of God, but you don't want—you don't want to go that far. You—you were—you were pretty good, but you're not going to be, you know, good to the standard that God requires. You're better than so and so, but you're still not good enough. Right? That's the kind of God we want. He says, "No." While you were still His enemies, I'm not going to do what God wants me to do. I'm going to do what's right in my own eyes. God says I can't be with this person, but I love this person. And and, and that, that person makes my life complete. So forget about what God says. I'm going here. I want that. God says I can't have it unless I work for it in this way. I don't want to work for it in this way. I want to have it anyway. So we, we transgress. We're, we're his enemies. We're hostile to him. But you know what? If you belong to him, if you're one of his, even when you were doing that, when you're rejecting him, he loved you. I can't fathom this. As you look back, like how could he love me? I look back to yesterday as a Christian and say, how can he love me with the love that he loves? Let alone when I was living in sin, apart from him, using him, disrespecting him, dishonoring him, and thinking that I was okay with God. What absolutely boggles the mind is that God would set his love on any one of us. right? Because all of us Deserve his wrath because all of us are weak. All of us are ungodly. All of us are sinners who deep down despise him apart from grace. You think Matthew loved him when Jesus called him? Before he called him, Matthew was living the tax collector life. You think that Paul loved him? Saul didn't love him. Even though he said he loved God. He didn't love the God of the Bible. It was another one. right? Mary Magdalene, when she was doing her thing? No, it's when that love comes to us, and yet he loved them amazingly. He set his affection upon us. And this is why we need to be assured of our salvation, because he loved us from the foundation of the world. Ephesians chapter 1 tells us this. Even as he chose us in him, that's God the Father, chose us in the Son, when? Before the foundation of the world. To what end? That we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. He always loved you. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. See the object? It makes, this is what makes his love so amazing is the object of his affection. You me, anybody. But that's not all. That's not all. He goes on. This amazing love and the price that he paid for sinners who despised him. Look at verse 7. He says this. For while one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare to even die. God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since then, we've been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved By him from the wrath of God the righteous person here when he talks about one will scarcely die for a righteous person back in those days in that time the righteous person was kind of the person that did um, like external works of righteousness for the most part it wasn't like oh that's a real righteous person that's like a holy person no in the vernacular and at the time a righteous person was one who was kind of outwardly a rule keeper kind of honorable in that way outwardly sincere but not really inwardly kind of a right trying to do the right thing or you know righteousness in their own way kind of like the pharisees they had like an outward form of righteousness but inward they were they were kind of dim. that's the idea and so he says you know one would one would scarcely die for uh, one will scarcely die for a righteous person though perhaps for a good person now a good person at this time. And what that means is a person who's more sincere, who did have more selfless qualities, right? That, that's a person that somebody might die for. That's a good man. That's a good woman. That's a really, that's a good person in there as far as that goes, you know, humanly speaking, in that way. So those kind of qualities. So so that's what, that's what Paul's saying here. Either way, whether it's for a righteous person or a good person, it's very rare that somebody would die for anybody. It's hard to grasp the depth of his love When you begin to understand the seriousness of your own sin, and that's what's going on here, the price of God's love is stunning when you consider the price he was willing to pay in order to secure your salvation. That's it, and that's why Christ came. To secure the salvation of all those who love Christ, all those whom the Father has chosen before the foundation of the world. The Father elects, chooses, the Son comes, redeems, propitiates, secures that salvation, the Holy Spirit changes the heart. He applies that salvation. So when the gospel is preached, you come to faith. That's the Holy Spirit working in your heart. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We are saved by God. That's what's going on here. The price of God's love is stunning when you consider the price that he was willing to pay in order to secure your salvation. Someone said, you see the love of Christ more effectively when you grasp the cross more fully. Christ died as our substitute that should just blow you away. that's amazing to think that not just the object but the price that he paid for you for this object for us as sinners look at the love he died for the ungodly he was a substitute on our behalf verse 8 he died for sinners verse 9 we're justified by his blood that's the price that he paid for those whom he loves and that's called that's a doctrine called Penal substitutionary atonement. And that's, that sounds big and it sounds fancy. All that means is he paid, Jesus paid the penalty for sin on the cross. That's a big deal. And that's what we need to understand because that's a doctrine, that's a teaching that's under attack big time, even from within the church. The progressive Christians look at penal substitutionary atonement as something that's like freakish, that's that's odd, that's crazy. And they say, you know, um, it's a doctrine that, that's like out of the pits of hell. Why would the father you know, commit this cosmic child abuse against his son by having him die this death on the cross? This angry father murdering his innocent son. It's kind of repugnant to so many. You're going to face this. You're going to see this. You're going to hear this out there, even within the church, because that's a, a kind of a movement. It's called progressive Christianity. Not kind of a movement. It is. Um. And they're and they're saying these kinds of things. But you know what? That penal substitution is actually the heart of the gospel. That he loved you enough to die for you, to take your place, to pay the price that you could never pay. That's what Jesus Christ has done. That's the heart. God himself saves his people from their sins by sending his son. The son, in full agreement, willingly comes to do for us that which we could never do for ourselves. That's what substitutionary atonement is. Through his sinless life, His death on the cross, the punishment we deserve fell upon him. He satisfied God's justice and he appeases the wrath of God on the cross so that we who believe and trust in Christ are declared not guilty, righteous because Christ's righteousness is given to us. All our sin is given to Christ, imputed to him. Therefore, we are righteous. Penal substitutionary atonement. It's a big deal. That's who we are. He didn't die so that the Father would love us. It's not like, oh, the Father hates us and can't stand us. And then Christ dies for us. We believe. And now that, that changes. Now he loves us. No, no, it's not. He didn't die so that the Father would love us. He died on the cross because the Father does love us. Amen. Praise God. He came to finish the work. Penal substitutionary. Big deal. It's throughout scripture. Just a few passages. We read one from Isaiah. I think Isaiah 53. He was pierced for our transgressions. Penal, pierced, penalty, paid that price for our transgressions. Substitutes himself. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. That's penal substitution, paying the penalty, substituting himself in our place, what you deserve because of your sin. That's how deep his love is for us, that he willingly paid the price that you could not pay. Somebody's going to pay the price. It's either Christ Jesus or you. It goes on. First Peter 224, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds. You have been healed. Penal substitution goes on. First Peter 318 for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Did you see the substitute, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, paying the price, but made alive in the spirit. I think we have one more. Second Corinthians five twenty one, for our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin. Sinless Savior Jesus on the cross becomes sin for us, takes the punishment of sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So on that cross, what happened? All of God's wrath is poured out on Christ. He bears the punishment as we believe in him. Our sin is imputed to him. His righteousness given to us. God looks at you and sees what? He sees the finished work of Christ. He doesn't see the sinner, the ungodly, the wicked. He sees one who's been redeemed and clothed in the righteousness of Christ who died for us. That's a big deal. Don't let anybody talk you out of penal substitutionary atonement. He died for his people. He substituted himself. This is how devastating sin is. This is how devastating sin actually is. And this is why we're so serious about our faith. That's why we say we don't play games. We're not playing a game with Christianity. It is life and death. We don't take it lightly. We don't say we love Jesus on the one hand and then just go and live and do whatever we want. No, we we look to him. We love him. We're being shaped and molded by him. We're not being silly in our faith. That's why we study and we study hard. That's why we pray and we pray diligently. That's why we we come together and encourage one another in the faith to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. That's why we meet and do this. It's not a game for us. A lot of people like to play Christianity. Oh, this is good. And if I do this, God will give me that. And if I just believe for this, I don't I believe that God needs to use us the way that he sees fit. And we're called to obey him and we're called to bring forth the word and we're called to count the cost of what it means to follow Jesus Christ. And we're called to bear that cross every single day, dying to our sinful desires in order to live For him, no matter what our circumstances, no matter where we are, no matter where we find ourselves, being faithful to the one who loved us and who gave his life for us. That's the Christian life. That's what we're talking about here. On the cross, he was treated as a sinner so that sinners may be treated as sons and daughters. That's not all. One more thing. Verse 10. This amazing love comes forth And the assurance that we have in him. Look at verse 10. He says this. For while we were yet enemies, we were reconciled to God by his death. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. See how amazing the love of God is? You see how deep this is? I can't bring it forth good enough. I know I'm not. in in that way to, to, to grasp the depth of the love of God for his people and what that means for us and the implications of that because he loves us so much this is how I want to live my life I don't want to live my life like I used to I don't want to go back to sin and when I do I'll confess it and and bring it before the Lord I want to be used by him I want to be faithful to him I want to be the best husband that I could be. I want to be the best wife that I could be for my husband for the Lord's sake. I don't want to be caught up in my own selfish sin that takes away from my marriage and from my life, from my witness. Do nothing to harm the name of God. Do nothing to bring disrespect or disrepute to the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the end result of this, because we have that assurance of his love. It's sure, it's certain, it's abiding. You cannot lose that salvation. He will not let you go. That salvation belongs to him. It's a gift from him given to us. We don't muster up our salvation. It's a gift of God so that no one will boast. If he's done it, if he's planned before the foundation of the world, he's certainly going to not let it go any time thereafter. We belong to him. And if you belong to him, you may stray, you may get in the weeds, but he's going to come and bring you back to himself. We don't have that much power over these things. He's the one with the power. He keeps us, and we're kept by that. Despite all this being true, this is what's so great about this when he talks about how much we're saved and how much his his death meant, but his life also means, because we know this. We know that we were sinners. We know that he died for us. We know that he loves us, but we doubt it. Far too often, we doubt it. Don't we? We struggle. Does he really, really love me that much? Even though I'm a Christian, he knows what I do. He knows what I think. He knows where I'm at. And he still loves me. Does he really? How could he? I know those struggles. We know we struggle in that way. Will he always love me? Even though we're assured that he is, we still wrestle with that. He puts that to rest here when he says that. If he loved us while we were at our worst, while we were still sinners, while we were ungodly, right? If he loved us while we were his enemies, why would we doubt his love for us now that we've been made sons and daughters, that he's brought us into the family? If he loved us then, why would he stop loving us now? He won't. That's And that's kind of what Paul saying here. He loved you before you knew him. He loved you when you disobeyed him. He loved you when you hated him. Why wouldn't he love you now? Now that you have been changed, now that you have been transformed, now that you know his love. So, verse 10 is kind of an argument from the greater to the lesser. If while we were his enemies, we were reconciled by God, reconciled to God by his death and his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received reconciliation. That's greater to the lesser. If he's done all of this for us in Christ, if he saved us, don't you think that he's going to keep loving us? Don't you you think he's going to let you go? You think you could do anything that would, would ter, t- take his love away from you? No. He, he tells us throughout scripture, and Jesus says, I've kept these ones. I'm going to keep them. Even when they're disobedient to me, I'm going to keep them gonna let them let them let them go in that way. And if they do go away, we know from first John they never really were of us. They were part of us as a group outwardly, but never truly transformed. If you're truly born again, if you're truly regenerated, if you're truly in Christ Jesus, that's permanent. Amen. And praise God. That's what Paul's saying. That's the assurance, man. He listen, the greater to the lesser, if he's done all this for us in Christ, don't you think he's gonna keep love? Don't you think he's gonna keep persevering with us? It's like he, he's done this big thing. Keeping us is more kind of like a lesser. It's still a wonderful thing. It's like, say somebody's kidnapped. And they're brought to, to a terrible place. And they're living in terrible condi- conditions, horrible conditions, horrible living conditions. They haven't eaten much. They haven't been clothed for a long time. And, and, and they're just living in that fear and that squalor and that pain and that terrible place. And then they're rescued. So when you somebody's been kidnapped, has been rescued, that's the big thing. You're rescued. You're set free. You're not under that bondage anymore. We have you. You're in a good place now. You're safe now. Don't you think that's the big thing? That's the greater thing. Don't you think that the rescuers are going to feed you? You think they're going to say, "Okay, you're rescued. See you later. You can go on your own way now." Don't you think that they're going to? Don't you think that they're going to clothe you? Don't you think that you're going to get a hot shower? Don't you think that you're going to you know be be housed in 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 a place there that's those are the lesser things. See God did the greater thing when He saved us in Christ Jesus, keeping us That's just you know that of course he's going to do that, and that's what Paul's saying here. That's what he's teaching us here. If we were saved when Jesus died, how much more are we assured of our future now that he's alive? He rose from the grave, that assures us that all of this is true. Everything we've been saying, everything that he's been writing. If if he hasn't been raised from the dead, then none of it's true, but he has been raised. See, if you get this, if you get this, if you believe this, that's deep and abiding joy. More than that, we also rejoice in God. If you know what you've been saved from, that he loved you from the foundation of the world, no matter what, through your life, that he saved you, that he paid that price for your salvation. And that he's going to keep you. If you get that, that's abiding joy no matter what our circumstances are. No matter what doubt creeps in, no matter how hard things get, no matter how distant we feel, he's not going to leave or forsake us. He's going to keep us. No one can snatch us from his hand. No one. Right? Amen. That's the joy that we have. So it doesn't matter what our circumstances. We have that abiding joy. Nobody could rob us of that joy. They might rob you of your freedom. They might take everything you own, but they can't take away Christ and the joy that we have in him. And that's what so many persecuted, that's what the persecutors don't get. They don't understand that. The more they persecute Christians, they think, oh, they're going to break. They're going to renounce. No, 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 no. There's just more abiding joy in Christ because he's with us and he strengthens us and we belong to him, right? That's it, that's how that works that's why that's why they no matter what they do to us they they they'll kill the body they can't kill the soul right? All that that the Father has done through the Son for those who truly know and love him and this is why we're so devoted to christ how How could we not be devoted to Christ? You've got to stop playing. If you're playing at Christianity, if you just want Christ, you seem like as a genie in the sky that's going to give you all your wishes, everything that you want. That's not the picture of the scripture of, of the Christian life, for sure. That's not the picture of the scripture. That's not the picture of church history. We don't play at that. This is why we're devoted to Christ. How could we not reverence him after everything that he's done for us? How can we treat him so badly, so lightly? This is why we're so serious about our faith. Because we know what he's accomplished on our behalf. When you know what Jesus Christ has done for you, then you're going to be serious about your faith. If you just have this kind of picture, oh, Jesus loves me, this I know for the Bible tells me so, that's, that's no depth there. But when you dig down and you see the price that Christ has paid for you, that changes everything. That makes you serious about your faith, in your word, in living for Jesus Christ. That's why we're determined to be faithful, because Jesus Christ deserves our fidelity. He deserves it for what he's done for us. We don't play around and and like, oh, I'll be faithful here, but I'm not going to be faithful there. I want to be faithful in every little thing that I do. And it doesn't matter how I'm treated. I'm going to be faithful unto him. That means in my work. That means in my relationships. That means in my life, because I'm doing it unto him. He deserves our fidelity. And that's why we don't compromise with the world. That's why I can't stand when we as Christians compromise with the world. We say one thing on Sunday morning, then Monday night or Saturday night, we're out just doing what we want to do. That's not cool. That's not who we are in Jesus Christ. We are are not to compromise with the world. We'll say one thing on Sunday and we believe this, but on Monday we'll go along with the world and say, well, I could see where that's the case, even though it goes against Scripture. No, no room for compromise in this world, not with yourself and not with the word of God. He is worthy of our compliance. He is worthy of our obedience. Do you know that? He's worthy of that. We owe him that. Not ourselves. We get so selfish or we get so afraid of the opposition. We get so afraid that we're going to compromise. We capitulate. We get so tempted that we're going to give in to to what we want instead of what he's commanded us to do. No. He deserves our fidelity. He deserves our obedience because he's our God. Because of what he has done for us. This is why we no longer live for ourselves because we owe him our very lives. And when you understand what Paul is saying here, you understand that very well. And that changes everything.